0: Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. I'm Scott Miller, and I serve as your host and interviewer each week. I am delighted to announce that today is the one-year anniversary of Franklin Covey's On Leadership newsletter and podcast. We have a great guest for you today. If you're not subscribing to On Leadership, visit franklincovey.com, click on the On Leadership tab, and the email newsletter comes to you every Tuesday complimentary where we feature a different thought leader, best-selling author, someone of significant influence that comes to your inbox. In an interview just like this, it includes a tool from Franklin Covey's broad tool set, as well as a blog article written by me. You can also consume it in podcast format. We push it out to every major podcast platform, Apple, Franklin Covey, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, download it, rank it, review it, rate it, and give us feedback on future guests. Now, when we thought about who would be the best guest for our one-year anniversary, we set to work looking at all of the New York Times best-selling authors, went through Amazon, talked to our publicists, our agents, our publishers. We had a huge list of major thought leaders, celebrities, sports players, people that we thought you would love to hear from to launch the one-year celebration. And although many of those are in the queue for the coming 12 months of interviews, We all agreed on one person. We thought, who would be the most thoughtful, endearing, and sincere interview to talk about Franklin Covey and leadership? And we settled, believe it or not, on our very own CEO and chairman, Bob Whitman. So Bob, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks, Scott. Honestly, it was an honor. to be here. That's how it went. We had all these amazing names of influential people who we will book and who will accept it in the next year but we thought we wanted to kind of cap the year with you coming down and following 51 interviews and have you share with us your own leadership journey, your struggles, your triumphs, your vision, not your visions, but your vision for the firm, (laughs) and really have you kind of share not just with all of our associates worldwide, but all of our subscribers, our clients, our facilitators, and kind of have them get to know you a bit better and sort of how you see the business landscape, what you see as the role of leaders in organizations. So well, I'm honored to be here. Thank we're honored you. honored honor to have I'm you, delighted, sir. I'm delighted to be so here. you and I have spent a lot of time together over the last we 20 have. plus years. I, yeah. I was talking to you off air. You and I have been on lots of planes together. Shanghai, Beijing, Munich, London, Amsterdam, all around the US. Mm-hmm. We've spent thousands of hours together. I know you quite well. I kind of see you Thanks as my so my co-father, and big brother, and boss, by the way. So I'd like to have you share with our audience a bit about your leadership journey. Take a few minutes and have people kind of orient to how you became the CEO of Franklin Covey. It's a good story. Well,
1: I mean, I've, I got an early leadership experience that was a tough one, yeah. actually. When I was 27 years old, on my, actually on my 27th birthday, I was called to Chicago, Mel Simon, who is the founder of Simon Property sure. Group was the chairman of a company, that was a resort development company that I worked for. And he told me they had just reor- re- reorganized management. That that's I was never now a good this, sign. <laughs> that I was the new CEO. Okay, that's a good thing. Uh, well, and that they were putting the company into bankruptcy to that's work through thing. all the debt. And it was a great experience. It was a tough experience, but you learned a lot early about really what it takes to work through a difficult situation. And, uh, and it was difficult. You were the
0: CEO of a real estate company at the age of 27.
1: Yeah, but it was in bankruptcy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it <laughs> so wasn't that great. Uh, following that, when that got all worked through, I went to the Trammell Crow Company in right. Dallas, which was then the country's largest real right. estate developer in, in a bunch of different categories. So you
0: moved from Utah out to Dallas with yeah, your family. Moved to Dallas. Right.
1: And uh, and Harlan Crow and I co ran a group. He was nice enough to let me co run it with him. A group called Trammel Crow Interest that included Wyndham Hotels and Resorts. It was in its startup mm-hmm. you know, phase and medical business and agribusiness and public distribution and trucking, international development. We had a, a mishmash of businesses. But it was a great time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Harlan and I spent a lot of time together, Ann Raymond, and worked through the, some of the challenges of these businesses. It was a difficult time in the economy. It was right when the uh, Southwest economy collapsed and all the banking system This is the, the s crisis, the SNL the crisis 80s, right? in the late 80s. Right. And after about a year and a half in that role, I was asked to take a sabbatical and become chief financial officer for the firm overall, wow. which had uh, 3400 partnerships mm-hmm. around the US, most of you know many of which were in difficult situation because of the general economy and mm-hmm. the difficult uh, banking environment. That
0: was both an honor and a massive burden Yeah, it was a big right? burden, yeah, right.
1: and so I was at the office very early every morning, my like 3 or 3.30, and yeah. working through this and also ran the capital markets group there. When when we finally worked through all those challenges, there was a huge group, you know, at Trammell Crow who worked through these challenges and eventually got them all. all. Uh, a guy that I'd gone to business school with uh, and I formed a company called Hampstead Group that was a real estate oriented private equity firm and our mm-hmm. idea was to back great entrepreneurs who had a great idea or a great with a great business needed capital and maybe some advice and uh, during the next 10 years we built up you know, a series of companies that were uh, you know really got to back some great people mm-hmm. and uh, be their partners and help them uh, you know, grow some pretty good good sized companies. The and years. along the
0: way you happened upon Dr. Stephen R. Covey. Talk about that story. Yeah, so
1: during those times, uh, actually, at the Trammell Crow Company, uh, Joel Peterson, who was the head of the Trammell Crow Company, and I were saying, what do you do if you're the country's largest developer and nothing needs to be developed for the next seven years? Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to take our real estate expertise and move it into the services area. And so we said, well, why don't we call Stephen Covey and see if he would come and speak to the partners meeting, which was at the Stanford Court Hotel in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. about a paradigm shift Because no one really wanted to be anything other than a developer, but nothing needed to be developed. At
0: that point, Stephen was just starting to earn some influence because the book, *The Seven Habits*, yeah, the book had been out just a
1: couple of years, right? Yeah, a couple of years, and so we met Stephen. Uh, Stephen was nice enough to ask Joel and I both to go on his board, and so Hmm. we went on the Covey Leadership Center board in 1992, I think, and uh, then they merged with Franklin Quest in 97. We both ended up on the uh, Franklin Covey board. And then uh, 20 years ago, uh, I was asked to serve as chairman, not with the idea of running the company, but uh, you know the company was facing some challenges there in the planner business and some right. of the things. Right. And we did a search, uh, couldn't find a real CEO, and eventually I was asked to serve as CEO. So now I've been doing this for 20 years, but that's how I got here
0: serendipitous that you actually brought Stephen in to teach your firm about paradigm shifts and then you ended up with the honor yeah. of becoming our chairman and CEO, yeah. right? No, it's been 20 a great plus year years later. Because you're so humble, I know you so well, you skipped over some of the patches there. You've done some things other than real estate, obviously, and Franklin uh, Covey. Talk about some of the other side ventures, successful or otherwise, that you've also been involved in.
1: Yeah, well, we built uh, we, we were in the lodging business okay. directly, and, and and had the chance to back some great people who build up Wyndham Hotels and Resorts, mm-hmm. and uh, Felcor, Bristol Hotels and Resorts, a big retirement housing company, called Forum Group that's, uh, that was sold to Marriott. We and those were kind of our core, you know, capabilities. We also did a couple of things that turned out not to be our core capabilities. <laughs> we bought a restaurant chain called Hula Hands. Yep. And, bought, and got a it great. one guy. in my hometown in Florida. Yeah, got a great guy to run it, and had, he had a great vision of what to do. But it a, we learned it is a very, very tough business, even when you have a good brand and great management. You know, it can be so nuanced that we didn't do well. And you
0: that. owned it was 150 plus. 140 or so 140 restaurants. restaurants. yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah and uh, so we now go to restaurants. <laughs> you we don't buy, don't buy own them or run them. <laughs> <laughs> that was a difficult one. We also bought a company that owned a, the Malibu Grand Prix racing parks, sure. with the idea of transforming them into this new concept called Speed Zones, which we did in Los Angeles, Dallas, and Atlanta. They did generate a lot of revenue and profitability, but not relative to their cost. Mm-hmm. And so we learned again uh, that you know, some of these businesses are just fundamentally difficult businesses, even if you've got the right idea. But uh, those are some kind of side side journeys al- along the way. But, Hard
0: lessons. Yeah, yeah well right, learned. Right. Yeah. So let's talk, thank you for that. Let's talk about some of your own leadership lessons. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pitch you a half dozen competencies that I think you actually model. And I'm gonna ask you just to, to accept the compliment and be just explain why you implement that. So just take, take them as they come. First, I think you are exceptionally great at carrying your own weather. It's a concept that Dr. Covey popularized in his book about you know resisting the reactivity of other people's moods and, and issues. So just assume for a moment I'm right. (laughs) And to the degree you agree that uh, you carry your weather well, talk to the audience around why that's so important to you, why you see that as a leadership trait, and some advice you might give people like me who tend to be fairly easily poked and reactive to situations and some things that I could do to be better at that.
1: I learned early in this first company that 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 was in bankruptcy, there were a lot of very difficult things to deal with, and you recognize that you, know, you, didn't, you really didn't control what was coming every day. Every day was very difficult, mm-hmm. and uh, it was difficult for years, actually, working through all the problems of that company. But you recognize that the, the mood of the whole company depended a little bit on how I reacted to the challenges we had. Right. And, how I, and, and so it was, and you, but you also just couldn't put on an act. And so you really had to learn to say, wait a second, we need to confront reality but we don't have to be miserable about it. You know, I mean, we can, we can confront and say there are a series of problems without being emotional about it. And I learned a lot during those years of saying, you know, of just waking up in the morning and saying, wait a second, this is a set of challenges, but it's not, you know, life and death, as important as it is. And I think that helped me in those years, honestly, to just say, you know, I actually do get to choose how I respond. And I can either be miserable all day. What I did instead was try to say, what are the two things I fear most today? <laughs> the mm-hmm. two banks I'd have to talk to mm-hmm. that I thought, well, shoot, if they don't come along, it could be problematic. And I just told them to call them first thing in the morning. If it's as bad as I think, at least it'll be over for mm-hmm. the day. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, I'm gonna have a great day. And so I think, you know, just through the years, you've recognized that if you, you know, that really your, your, your job is to address and, uh, problems and address opportunities. Uh, not everything's gonna be happy. But you can choose, you know, kind of your response in in the circumstance. So.
0: so I'm a member of your executive team, and I've learned a lot of lessons from you. One of them that you've taught your entire team and the company at large is this idea of separating, implementing an idea from making the right decision. Yeah. Talk about how that discipline is so valuable for leaders to separate those, so they do make the right decisions and don't become maybe cluttered or overwhelmed from well, that would be so hard to implement.
1: I think it is one of the most, most difficult leadership challenges because when you're faced with a challenge or faced with a problem, you know, immediately you start thinking of all the difficulty in implementing a, a yeah. problem. Oh gosh, this would what affect these assume. people. Right. You'd know, you have to get this. And, and you get clouded. You know, I, I found myself in my early days and found, saw other people in the same circumstance get very clouded by the implement, difficulty of implementing what was actually the right decision. And so I really made a decision at one point, you know, like, what if you could separate making the right decision from the difficulty of implementing it and just saying there are completely different things? And so I'd pose the question to myself as I'd go run in the morning or something. Okay, what would I do? If I, were just, if I flew in from out of the solar system and I didn't have any emotional connection to anything and I just was looking at the circumstance, what would the right decision be? And by the time I got back from it, I knew what the right decision was now you had all the issues of implementing it, but you know, to not get those two confused, I think, is an important thing, because so many people get frozen into inaction mm-hmm. or taking inadequate action mm-hmm. because they're so worried about the consequence. Mm-hmm. When they, If they really recognize, hey, this is the right thing to do, now let's deal with implementation of it. You know, the, and separating those two things has helped me a lot over the years uh, in facing difficult decisions. I
0: also think, Bob, from our previous question around uh, you know, measuring your temperament and always being in control of your emotions that one of the things you're great at, and I've, I've complimented you on this in front of others, is that you're pretty good at compartmentalizing. And when I say that, I've watched you move from a meeting that was perhaps very, um, could be very emotional for someone else, right? Really bad news, challenging news could weigh on you, to uh, immediately have to have another couple-hour meeting on a strategy session back to perhaps another really emotional situation. And I have watched you... It doesn't mean that, that you're cold or that you're robotic, but you're pretty disciplined at compartmentalizing that hour from this hour, and you don't tend to bring the emotions or the elation or the excitement from one to another. How did you develop that, that, that competency that discipline? Because I think that's important for all leaders to be able to be um, calm and gathered and measured and not let your anger on one thing spill over into your reputation on another.
1: You get to choose. That is a big thing, because you know, and so you recognize, well, wait a second, the next person who spent four hours preparing for the one hour meeting with you, you know they for them, that's a really important hour, and it's probably important for you and the future of the company too and if you're if you're bogged down in the problem you just heard about in the previous meeting, you you both don't do do justice to the person who's prepared, and you also get jaundiced a little bit in terms of how you're responding to their ideas and so i to me, it just I've learned over the years, just you know, it's not always you know, certainly far from perfect in doing it, but, but it really, you know, each thing is its own circumstance. They yeah. may be connected, but you know that really, you get to choose the response, and you know that thing, that problem, is probably not going to be fatal. And if it's not fatal, then might as well focus on the new opportunity and just try to separate the two and so sure, yeah. I don't do it as well as I should. But I think uh, you're great. I think
0: you're great at it. Think about your role as CEO for a moment. If Princeton or Stanford or Emory or Auburn called you up and said, we want you to hold uh, a session on how to be a great CEO, recognizing that every situation might be different, what advice would you give a CEO out there of regardless the size of company on how they should spend their time? Because I'm sure you're dealing with shareholders, big and small. You're dealing with you know, running a public company, strategy, culture, operations, acquisition, talent development. How do you decide to use your time Because at the end of the day, your decisions and your time are your most valuable asset as a CEO. What lessons have you learned on, as you've become a CEO of small companies and large companies, public and private, how do you you choose to choose to spend your time? Hmm.
1: You know, I think, for me at least, and again, I don't know if this is good advice for everyone, but for me it's to try to say there are two places you ought to spend your time, on the biggest opportunities and the biggest problems. And if you really say, okay, I'm going to try to address... The biggest challenges and have a plan for working those through really most of the rest of my time is spent with people on the biggest opportunities for growing and going forward and so i suspect every ceo you know ends up doing that but, but the time in between of, you know the stuff the thin things as we say you know you don't want to spend your time in the thick of thin things mm-hmm. if you're focusing on solving big problems or addressing big opportunities that is kind of what my agenda is most weeks is when i plan out the week it's the big rocks as we teach, you know, kind of come around one of those two things, either solving a problem or addressing a big opportunity. And that maybe is a, a guide for, at least for me.
0: So let's get personal interested. for a moment. I was talking about you, how you plan your week. I happen to know that you have a bit of a philosophy on, on, as a leader in every aspect of your life, that you want to become really an opt, optimize every role in your life. You have, a, you have a process of where you usually wear a shirt that has right, today has, has a cards in it. Cards are out for the interview. But yeah. um, disclose for the audience, if you will, a little bit the personal side of how you choose to kind of live your life around maximizing your roles. I think it's endearing.
1: Well, you know, you do have different roles. I mean, so for me, you know, every day I've got, I've got my list of my roles, and I have kind of make a list of the five what's and the five who's. Okay. And uh, the what's are driven by the big objective, you know, around whatever role I might be playing. And the who's are trying to make sure that the most important who's in my life, who are, you know, whichever role they're in, uh, you know, get the time too. And so it's it's maybe a simplistic way of doing it. But I figure if I can address the five biggest important things in a day and try to stay on the first one until I make substantial progress and don't forget to connect with the five who's that somehow... It's kind of balanced, you know, life is balanced out okay.
0: But there are five who's and five what's. There are. And, you, and your roles, I've seen your cards once, you know, you don't call it CEO, but leader yeah. of this firm and husband and grandfather, right? You and know. you connect to those daily. They're pretty I much. Know. Yeah. I think it's inspiring.
1: You know, you, you talk to all my grandkids at least every two days and seven, grand, seven Bob, grandkids. Bob, of,
0: of all the leadership principles, habits, disciplines, practices, challenges that you deal with at Franklin Covey, what do you struggle with the most as a leader? Which, which of all of the concepts that we teach and we, uh, we share and, sh- and, 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 ch- and challenge with, which one do you struggle with? What's I hard think, for you? I
1: think the hardest thing in the world is focus, honestly. I think, I think the hardest thing is to stay focused in a world of choices. You know, and so I think you know, while I, I view my, my responsibility as being focused, it's, I think, the single hardest thing to be sufficiently focused on the, the smallest number of really important high-impact things and spend a disproportionate time, amount of time on those. I think Because is, the temptation to... Yeah, because there's so right. many things you can involve in yeah. and it can influence. Yeah. And you end up, you can easily end up at any day, let alone a week or a month, having touched a lot of things that were not that important. So I mean, I think it's a difficult challenge for every organization, every individual. It's a continual challenge. But to me, it's it, that's one which, which if won, to the extent you can win, you know, and you're spending a way disproportionate amount of your energy, emotion, and talent, to the extent you have it, on the things that have the greatest impact, you end up having a, a pretty, you
0: know, I think you can have a lot more impact than yeah, you think. disproportionate. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk for a moment about um, leader as coach. So I think it's one of your passions and talents as well. I've reported to you for about a decade now, worked, ultimately for you for over two decades. And I know I've come hat in hand several times to your office, several dozen times (laughs) to your office. Mm -hmm. One in particular that's visceral to me is, gosh, I don't know, eight years ago, I was leading a campaign and I had not properly done all the due diligence to make sure that the, the name for that campaign could be trademarked by us. In fact, I was midway through branding a launch of something and discovered through a letter from an attorney that we, in fact, had not appropriately protected that brand. That we were accidentally, uh, unwittingly using someone else's brand, and we we solved it very amicably to their delight as well. But I had to come in and explain to you I'd made a fairly significant challenge in that this person was you know perhaps going to litigate against us, and that I um, immediately told you all the facts. Hopefully, and sure. it was not a small, costly decision for the company. And I remember as it was yesterday, uh, it was not a small problem, <laughs> and you immediately began to share with me a similar mistake you'd made early on in your career of even bigger impact yeah. and you could have done lots of things you could have lost your cool likely not but you could have shamed me you could have just dismissed it and not confronted it and I might have gone out and not that was a very big deal but we sat down we talked about the gravitas of it but you shared and you gave me kind of permission to own my mistake Talk about what had led me to that. It was a very endearing leadership moment where I didn't feel any less responsible, but I wanted to rise to the standard you kind of set for me. Where did you learn that skill I, patience? I, I
1: think from having other people exhibit that patience with me, mm-hmm. honestly, you know, you just recognize that in reality, hey, look, life has lots and lots of errors, right, associated, you know, associated with it. Most... Uh, golf putts don't drop most basketball shots don't drop mm-hmm. and you know uh, and you'd spend if you spend your time on the problems and the mistakes you, know, you can learn from them but re- realistically i was the, i've been the beneficiary many times of other people's patients. so maybe it's just easier to to recognize that you know we all make mistakes and uh, and most of them are not fatal in fact very few of them turn out to be fatal yeah, right. and so the, you know kind of keep it in perspective and recognize that in the end you know it's a partnership we're all gonna, we bring the good and, and all, the, all the brilliant moments and we also bring some things that aren't as brilliant and that you know, no one would want to be judged by their worst moment, right? right? right. It's such an unfair way to assess people is to take a mistake and make that the main thing in a, in, in a landscape that's so beautiful of all the great, great things they're doing. So again, I think primarily I learned from, from people having that same patience with me. At uh, an early age, of, like 27-year-old C- CEO. <laughs> of a bankrupt company. <laughs> company.
0: <laughs> yeah, <just> bank <laughs> up. Bob, let's assume for a minute that you become the CEO of another company and you're trying to recruit staff and build an executive team. What are the types of – you're fairly seasoned by experience, not by age. Mm-hmm. But uh, what types of characteristics, competencies do you look for in a leader at any level? Kind of think through, name me five or six uh, – Leadership competencies that you really value, whether it's a first-level leader, mid-level leader, or an executive-level leader.
1: Well, for me, one is character. Okay. You know, so for me, you know, and again, I don't mean that it, you know anybody would want to have somebody that has bad character, but I think character mm. is multipass. You know, that really it's it's a deep well of personal resolve, it's personal integrity, ca- integrity and so forth. I think is, you know. Most leadership journeys are a marathon, not a sprint, mm-hmm. and it is very difficult if the person who's who's the leader doesn't have fundamentally good character right. I think second is intellectual curiosity you know I mean the world is changing so rapidly you're not trying to buy, you're not hiring somebody for what they know is what they could know right and what they want to know and what they, and the capabilities they have and so I think intellectual curiosity is as observed by they really want to know the answer to everything and, or at anything, and they're willing to, to go after. It. I think that's another, you know, really important quality. And the third is being a partner, you know, somebody who re- really actually sees the value in other people and wants to leverage the capabilities of a team rather than just uh, being an individual contributor. So I, those are three that's things great. that
0: I look at. Talking about your own leadership journey, what have you learned over the course of your 40-year career that you thought – these leadership traits were important early on, and you've come to learn. Actually, it's these leadership traits. Have you have you made some evolution in your own thinking yeah, around definitely. your own leadership style? Yeah, Share definitely. Some of definitely. I would say
1: that early on, I was an uh, I was an individual contributor at a high level, but I felt like I had to own the whole problem. You know, I you know if I shared the problem, other people would be depressed by it, and frankly my circumstances. You know, these early circumstances of difficult. Workouts or whatever else, and it gave two other people too little credit for actually the fact they're they're actually more worried when you don't tell them. You know they think it's worse than mm. than uh, than it really is. because so you learn to know, become more transparent? Yeah. So I think early on I felt like I had to take all the responsibility. I had to mm. own the whole mm. solution. I had to solve the problem, rather than saying, Hey, wait a second, let's just describe the problem and figure out how to get everybody together addressing it. That first of all, the, you know, the weight is different. It's distributed. And the solutions come out a lot more rapidly. And, it, and at the same time, it builds uh, it builds a team. You know, It builds the feeling of, hey, we're all in this together and we're going to figure it out together. And I think early on, I was too focused on my individual c- contribution mm-hmm. and felt like that was my mm-hmm. responsibility. So I have gone quite a bit the other way, where I feel like almost every decision now is a partnership kind of a decision. You know, yeah. that,
0: I've also heard you talk about, as, as the leader, you don't have to have all the solutions. You don't have to have all the right. answers. You're a big fan of Liz Wiseman, as have I, yeah. right? Her book Multipliers yeah. is up here. Around leaders are trying to bring out the genius of others and yeah. bring people up that are super smart in their own respective areas. Yeah. You don't have to be the font of all knowledge, right? So, go, thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, no, I was saying I think I think you do sometimes feel the responsibility to have the answer, and really I think if you have the question, that's much more important. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about Franklin Covey. So you've been here a long time, right? You served on the board. You've been our chairman and CEO for the last 21 years, 21 years. years, That's right. And you've seen a couple evolutions, right? I mean, you inherited it as the Franklin Quest company with how many retail stores were there? 184. 184? Wow. And a big online business, consumer-focused business. And Mm -hmm. you and the board and your leadership team transitioned out of that business. There's been several transitions since then. And Franklin Covey has really become, from my estimation, the world's most... Reputable intellectual property company as it relates to leadership development. There's been several transitions There's been a really crucial one that came about about four years ago or so yeah. I, Again check your humility because as the CEO and chairman of the board you're responsible for setting vision and strategy yeah. Talk about where you and the board have taken the company in terms of transforming the way we work with clients as most people now know as the Alexus pass. I'd like you to take a few minutes and talk about how that idea came about, why you and the board thought it was wise, how you've implemented it, and then I'd like to talk about how do you see that changing the landscape of how organizations work with us, the marketplace and how important learning is to organizations. It's a long question there. Yeah.
1: Well, I think it goes back to actually the early days when I was here. I mean, really the the seed of it was planted then in the early days you may recall I was out, you know, most Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I was out with our right. sales force visiting clients. Hundreds of client, hundreds client meetings. And hundreds right. of client visits. And during that period of time, you recognized that there were kind of two sides to the equation of this learning and development or performance improvement. One was just skill, skill development. You know, there was a need for building basic skills and individuals' capabilities. And that a lot of people in the industry were really responsible for, right. for, for, for that. There was the other side, which was connecting those capabilities to actually getting a business outcome. Right. I was at a company, I was at Johnson & Johnson, actually, with the chief learning officer, uh, head of the corporate university at Johnson & Johnson. And they, he, he said, you know, we've trained 3,500 people in seven habits of highly effective people. And I said, well, that's, that's really a large number. How many total employees do you all have? And he said 30,000. And I said, well, so let me ask you a question. You know, you you were saying how great it is that and it is great that you've trained thirty five hundred, but are the rest of them already so effective they don't need it? Right. Or you know, why what, why stop at ten percent? Right. And he said, Well, he said, We love you. We love Franklin Covey. And we being And then I said but he said, We the learning and development right. people love you. But the line leaders, you know, it's not it's not that they don't like you. They love your your content, but they just don't see how what you do drives what the results they have to do today. They've got sales to do, they've got customer loyalty to drive, they've got other things to do. And after hearing that, so I asked that question in the next hundred mm-hmm. sales calls, and what would, what would be the one thing you wish we could do differently, or what, what would it take to make it easier for you to have us go to different parts of the organization? We recognized that in the end, if you couldn't connect yourself to the large-scale change in human behavior, mm-hmm. it's one thing to build skills in individuals, but to get those individuals collectively working toward a common objective is really the holy grail. Based on that, as you know, we went in and we we created practices and execution, customer loyalty, Mm -hmm. sales performance, Mm -hmm. education, trust, Mm -hmm. these things that become pervasive behavioral change things. So those years, of 10 years of building all the content put Mm -hmm. us in a position Mm -hmm. to then address this four years ago. We said, you know, really, if we're gonna be the partner of choice for these customers, for these clients, we're now the partner of choice because they can hire, they can hire us, to, or they can engage us to help them develop uh, capabilities but also get results that require a lasting change of behavior at scale, but we're making it too difficult for them because you know, they have to engage with us at one solution at a time. Right. So ultimately right. in the end, it said, you know what, what they, the world they live in, what if we could offer all of our content to those individuals in all modalities, across all languages, you know, at a price per person trained that would be the same as they're paying for a single course and a single modality, Mm -hmm. have somebody to help them that would navigate and create solutions to the real challenges, we could really be their partner. And so once we recognized that's what it would take to really be the partner of choice, and we went out and did hundreds of interviews, and what would it really take for us to, to be your partner, we found that many of our clients said, gosh, we would love it if you would make it easier Uh, to access this. And once we understood that, it made it easy to, even though it was dramatic change in accounting and investment and so forth, it was actually a pretty easy strategic decision, just like every other decision was during those same 20 years to try to say, in the end, we want to be the partner of choice with clients who want us, we want to have clients for life.
0: So So, I think it's reasonable to say the all-access pass has transformed our relevancy with clients and future clients. That it's also disrupted the landscape of the industry wasn't our intention but it's changed the way clients are demanding services from all of our competitors as well I was interviewing Karen Dillon recently a good friend of yours who is the former editor of the Harvard Business Review and she was reminding me in one of these interviews that I think it was north of 95% of companies that have been successful by their measure financial measure that the vast majority of them ended up with a different strategy than they began with. Right, right. it was from deliberate strategy to emergent strategy. Right. As you look at the, well, are we four years into Alex's Pass? Yeah. just. Just four years in, yeah. uh, as we look, you look at kind of what your vision was for it originally, kind of where you see the puck going, what do you see as the emergent strategy a couple years from now, clients that are renewing, expanding their past, that are really transforming their organization do you have a vision of what that looks like down the road? We do, and I think it's driven
1: by the same things. What are the, cha- what are the major challenges those customers or our, our clients yeah. are facing that require a scaled change in human behavior? And so for us, we have a map, as you know, that goes out several years, and beyond the eight fun- you know, focus areas we have today, we have right. another map of the three or four right. that will be coming. And so I think for us, we're saying if we can continue to sol- help our clients address the biggest challenges they have, that require lasting change in be- human behavior at scale, and that we're their partner of choice in solving those big intractable problems. That that is a that is that drives our product development map because we again want those clients to be clients for life, and we want to be have them be more important uh, and feel that we're more important partners to them five years from now than they are now. And the best way is helping them solve the major challenges they have. So.
0: Well, it goes back to your previous comment around the leadership competency of focus, right? You're yeah. not you're not as our CEO trying to make the all access pass the largest collection no. of content found anywhere in the world. No. You're quite deliberate at how you're curating content and how you're offering it in the pass because you're being very specific around what are the key issues our clients are right. facing, not what are all the issues our clients are facing.
1: I think it's true and it, and, again, I think there are some tremendous libraries of content that have been created by others. Yeah. They give, you know, wide access to skills and so forth. And, the, you know, it's a, in some respects, maybe it's getting to the point where it's a little hard to differentiate yourself in that space because there's so many courses, there are thousands and thousands of courses you can take on anything, but they're all good. And we admire those companies that are doing it. We're just not playing on that side. We're saying it, please use you know you should probably buy a subscription to one of those so you can you know if your people need skills in any individual thing how to do outlook or create a resume or whatever but That'll solve that problem for you, but if you're focused on the things where you need to get lots of people in right. your organization to Change do their behavior something right. different right. or better right. or more consistently, yeah. uh, you know, we're, we want to be your partner of choice yeah. for those things.
0: Well said. Our time is coming to an end. I'm going to ambush you with this question around Hiram and Stephen. So the founders of our company were Hiram Smith and Stephen R. Covey, two very dear friends yeah. of yours. Hiram to this day is still a good friend. Yeah. He's been on our set. Dr. Covey passed, I think, just shy of seven years ago right. or so. Tell us something you learned from Hiram and something you learned from Dr. Covey.
1: Great. From Hiram, actually in 1985, I took the Time Quest course. 85. 1985. I graduated I took, in 86 from high school. Took, <laughs> I, took, I took the Time Quest course in Dallas from Hiram Smith. Wow. He taught it. He taught it. Yeah. I went home that weekend, created my, you know, value, the long term yeah. values, long term yeah. goals for my family. We created a list. I created a list for our family of 46 adventures that I wanted our kids to have had by the time each of them, by the time they had left school. You know, some were intellectual adventures, yeah. or cultural adventures, or service, or athletic achievement thing. 46. things. 46. Yeah, I just you know right. I made this long you bring list. You from a list. And so every Sunday night, for the next 20 years, when I would plan the week, we would plan. Our family's future around those experiences we wanted them to have. So that's one thing I learned from him.
0: How far did you get to the 46?
1: We, when my son left, we'd had like thir- he had done like 32. Wow. And my daughter had done like 34 or something by the time she left. And I don't think
0: we ever got. To- do you still done. have the list of forty-six? Yeah, I do somewhere. I, I, I did. I've you, seen You it. and your wife and your kids curated them together. Yeah, we can. How I, I reviewed
1: with people and said, yeah. "Hey, well, this, so when we're going to this place, let's also do this thing." And
0: tell me again, sorry. So some of them were you said intellectual. So
1: the intellectual, cultural, yeah. spiritual, service, service, spiritual, yeah. and athletic. You know, wow. How did mountain. you learn that? No, no, I just, but I just learned it from Hiram. He said, pick categories of things. And so I thought, oh, that's a good idea. That's a good workshop. And so it was a great, yeah. it was a great thing. And so, huh. so I'd say that was a life-changing thing from Hiram. Stephen, in a similar way, you know, really, I think, taught me the importance of not putting your agenda on other people. Uh, after a board meeting at the Covey Leadership Center, my son was deciding where to go to college. And it was clear that I had a, a view as to where I was hoping to go to college. And Stephen said, You know, it sounds to me like you've already decided where you want your son to go to college. Do you think he knows that too? And I said, Well, I don't know. He said, Yeah, I can promise you he does. <laughs> and he said, You know, he said, one thing that he had learned was not try to put his agenda on his kids. And he said, wow. You won't be a good advisor to your son until you actually are okay with wherever he goes and are supportive of him. And he knows that. I thought that is really true. I've chosen, I've chosen for him, and now I'm kind of not shaming him, but you know, kind of coaching him toward that. And I thought, you know, I really do need to change my mindset on this thing. I went home from the board meeting to Dallas and said to my son, "You know what? I apologize. You probably know that I've been thinking you should do this. It's not because I want you to go there so much. I just think you'd have a great experience there. But you know what? As long as long here, let's sit down and decide criteria." that are important to you can i also tell you what i think would be important we you know in terms of the schools you go to and i said i am now completely okay with you going to any of those schools and you know fully supportive of it it really was a you know we always had a great relationship but he, he could just feel the burden lift and uh, he just said great and i said i really mean it as long you know we've now agreed on the criteria any of those 5 meet the criteria so you just tell me where you're going to go and it turned out great and but it was, it was a great thing not to try to put your own agenda on other people. And so I tried after that not to uh, not to be guilty of that.
0: Bob, you've had a very successful career in life. It hasn't been without challenge, right? right? I mean, from the outside in, it might look like you've had a, uh, uh, not a charmed life, but an easier life. But you've had some obstacles in your life as well. I know some mm-hmm. of them. Um, and you are very deliberate. You have great perseverance. You have, I think, exceptionally strong character one thing i like most about you is you model something that we teach around excuse free apologies you're pretty deliberate so you don't find yourselves in a lot of pickles i know you you are you find yourself pretty i think you you stay above the fray because you i think have such high character and you're clear in your values when you do find yourself owing someone an apology which is rare and i've seen it i've noticed in you You just apologize. You don't attach anything. You don't give any excuses. You show great humility. And that's I think a gift to people because it allows people to realize that you too haven't had a flawless record of success, right? Right. You've mentioned some today. Um, Where did you learn that?
1: I'm not sure, but I think probably because of when people apologize to me, it was always conditional you know, it, it seemed like, you know, they'd say, well... You could feel it. Yeah, you could feel it. It was more like, well, I'm sorry I said that, but I was really tired at right, the time, or right. I, was, I was sorry I said or... that, but I'd had a really bad day, and and, and that I hopefully wasn't judging him, but I just recognized the apology didn't seem as sincere as, I am really sorry that I said that. And I thought, you know what, I don't want, any if I, when I need to apologize, which more often than I I should, should need to. Um, You know, I really, if I really am sorry, I should just say, I'm sorry, you know, and take and own the behavior, not try to justify it that, oh yeah, well that was a very bad day for me. So I hope you understand why I, and then it, 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 it mutes the effectiveness of just saying, I'm sorry. So
0: I think that's a huge gift you've given the culture of this firm. And I want to end on this thought. I think your legacy in my mind, inside of our company is going to be the following. It's not that you transformed the landscape of our of our of our marketplace, because I think you will have that as a legacy. I think your legacy will be on the fact that this is a very reputable firm. We don't have a lot of um, accounting restatements and there's no scandals going on, and it's a very reputable brand, and we practice what we preach. I'm very proud to work here. I I give keynotes a lot around the nation. I have a radio program I host for the firm, and I've talked a lot about this gift you've given the company, which is of whenever you get a thousand people together, you're going to have problems, right? No, no culture is perfect, but at Franklin Covey, we have almost zero tolerance for gossip in this firm. And I have said hundreds of times to clients, it starts at the top. You do not tolerate gossip, and it isn't even in your in like your chemical makeup. And at the board, at the board level and at the executive team level if someone isn't there to represent themselves, you will postpone that topic. And you'll say, well, what time does Scott's plane land? Let's, oh, in 80 minutes, great. Let's come back to that and let's have Scott represent himself. Because you don't want people to find themselves in the trap of mm-hmm. trying to represent me wrong and then, you know, their agendas right. get involved. And you don't ever tolerate someone else disparaging or criticizing someone. It doesn't mean we don't have a high, we, don't have, we have a robust culture. But I think you have set the standard Because the board doesn't gossip, the executive doesn't gossip, the general managers don't gossip. And no one tolerates it because no one believes it's acceptable. And it comes from the top. Talk about how important it is for a leader at any level of an organization to model what they want to see in their people.
1: Think what a great gift it is to know that when you're not there. They've got your back. That everybody's got your back. Or that they're going to be loyal to the absent, that you don't have to worry, or you're not, you're not jumping on a phone call because you're afraid if you're not on there, something will happen. It's a gift that basically says, look, you know, the person's contribution is important, and we're not going to discuss it without them here. If there's a critique or whatever, you know, hey, great, let's just all sit down and talk, it, to talk about it together. So I just think it's a, it's a great human thing, right, to, to be loyal to the absent and to know that you never have to worry about, you know, what somebody is saying. You know, my, my wife's that way. I mean, I, I never have to wonder if she's confessing my sins to her mm. mother or her sisters. Mm. I, I never have thought of that. Mm. You know, so maybe I learned it from her. Mm. But, you know, really, you know, she doesn't tolerate it either. I mean, she just wouldn't, would never do that. And so we maybe... Because it's
0: pervasive in some cultures. Yeah, it probably I mean, is. And, I know, think it's our strongest currency here. You know, but I'll tell you a compliment. I think it comes from the top. I think you've done such an exceptional job of just making sure everyone knows that's not who we are. Right. That's not going to be our our you know killer app, so to speak. And right. I think it's been one of your finest legacies here.
1: Well, thank you, Scott. It's a great it's a great pleasure. It's been great to be your partner all these years. Thank you, Bob. I look forward to being partners for many more years to I th- come. I hope so as well and too. I love, and I love the Franklin Covey people and and our clients. You know, we really are blessed to be in it working doing things that really matter. Where we wake up every day wanting to make a difference in a positive way, and, and that's a great great thing to do.
0: Bob, thanks for joining us. We've interviewed four-star generals, Pulitzer Prize-winning authors, major celebrities. Try interviewing your boss on the <laughs> <set>. <laughs> It's a little daunting. Thank you for joining us. Hope you subscribe to On Leadership, and we'll see you back here next week for the first episode and our second year for On Leadership. Thanks so much.